Welcome to the Brainfluence Podcast with Roger Dooley, author, speaker, and educator on neuromarketing and the psychology of persuasion. Every week, we talk with thought leaders that will help you improve your influence with factual evidence and concrete research. Introducing your host, Roger Dooley. Welcome to the Brainfluence Podcast. This is Roger Dooley, and today with us, we have Brian Massey, also known as the Conversion Scientist. Brian's an expert on conversion optimization. He's the co-founder of Austin-based Conversion Sciences and the author of Your Customer Creation Equation, Unexpected Formulas of the Conversion Scientist. I've seen Brian speak both here in the U.S. and abroad, and I always enjoy his talks because he usually talks not just about conversion, but the underlying psychology. And one thing that you won't see in this audio podcast is Brian's normal speaker outfit. It's not a suit. It's not a Steve Jobs jeans and black turtleneck setup. It's a white lab coat. Brian, for starters, welcome. And tell us about the lab coat. Well, the lab coat, there's a couple stories. The first being that uh, when I put on the lab coat, not only do I lend the impression to my audience that I'm smarter than I actually am, but I actually make myself believe that I'm smarter than I actually am. And there has been some interesting studies along those lines to prove out the fact that we're able to solve cognitive problems when we're wearing a lab coat as opposed to our normal clothes or even to a lab coat that is called an art schmock. So that's that's one reason. But the overarching reason that I selected the lab coat, and that's kind of a uh, touchstone, is because... When I put it on, it is symbolic for leaving the world of marketing myth, of sales superstition, and of gut feel when you are crafting messages and persuasive text and copy and pictures for your visitors. That is left behind, and we are entering a world of data-driven, data-guiding decision-making, where we let the visitors tell us through in our case, through doing tests, tell us how they want to receive information and what's more likely to make them become a customer, a lead, or a subscriber on our website. So it's as much a psychological as an intellectual shift in my approach when I put that on. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I've seen the research that shows you get a little bit smarter when you're wearing a lab coat and kind of suggests that maybe we should all just wear lab coats all the time and maybe we'd up the collective IQ of the world a little bit. Are, are, you, are, are you wearing it now? I am, of course. Okay, good. Well, I was, I was going to say, if you weren't, uh, you know, it might be tough for you to keep up, but uh, if, since you've got it on, I think we're in good shape. <laughs> I, so, I, you know, always, always got to have it on when I'm, when I'm presenting. Yeah, awesome. So, Brian, I first read your book a year or two ago, and I really enjoyed it. There are a few good books on conversion in print, and I think yours is probably the easiest to read and to start to implement right away. It's short, comparatively short, mm. not that short, but uh, and it's I found very accessible. Uh, who's your target audience when you're writing the book? Yeah, the target audience for that, I did make it, um, you know, design the book to be a long plane ride read. My audience really was small and medium-sized businesses who rely on third parties to give them advice. So they're hiring a developer for their website or they employ a developer. They're hiring a, a designer, typically a designer outside the company, but may also be inside the company. In managing the business, they're really relying on that developer and that designer to give them the right advice. And unfortunately, uh, unless you've been testing sites like I have over the years, 
your advice is going to be bad. Uh, the advice you get from your developer and your designer is often going to be wrong, just plain wrong. And they mean well, and much of what they do is based on what other people are doing. So the book was written to help you ask the right questions and to give you an appropriate amount of skepticism whenever somebody says, here's how we should do it, that you can ask the question, well, this is important in my business. Why are we doing it that way? And what evidence do you have that this is going to work for me? When you start to ask those questions, then you look at your website very differently. So the book is designed to help you change the way you look at a website and to make you a better uh, web manager. Mm -hmm. Great. Near the beginning, you talk about the readers setting up a digital conversion laboratory. Explain what you mean by that. Well, so we have all these amazing tools. It's like if you go back a few decades, it would be like ordering an ant farm from the back of one of those uh, comic books that you read. You would get the, the ant farm and the ants. And you Did you ever order one of those ant farms? Of for course you? I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I had one for a while, too. That was kind of fun. Yeah. But there's... a. Always this uh, fear among uh, moms and so on that they would somehow all escape in the house. Well, I'm sure that we probably released a certain number of invasive species of ant into the <laughs> U.S. through those things. But, um, you know, curiosity cannot be held. <laughs> but, I mean, sorry, sorry. You, you, you learn things about ants that you never expected to learn about ants and, and uh, you became closer with them. I, I built an affinity towards that species and all other species, uh, lower fear of them. And it's the same thing with your digital lab. What you're doing is you're setting up tools and you really get to see the people coming to your website, people trying to solve a problem, people trying to look cool with your clothes, or people trying to just escape for a little bit and have a moment of entertainment through your content. You get to see how they behave. And I think all the same things that you get from the ant farm apply. You begin to build an affinity for them. You begin to understand them. You begin to think like them. And if you're talking about building a web business, there is nothing more powerful. So the digital lab is the analytics that you put on this site to see where people are going. Uh, one of my favorite tools is a heat map, a click tracking tool, Crazy Egg, Clicktail, Inspectlet. There are a number of solutions for that that shows you where people are clicking and how far they're scrolling. And having some tools in there where you can do split testing if you're, we've moved along to that level of, of questioning are part of the, the lab. And in my lab, there are a number of tools that allow me to spy on our clients' competitors and see if the competitors are testing themselves and what sort of sophistication they have along the lines of using data to make decisions. And then, you know, the lab can consist of some fine PDFs. In fact, we've got a list of resources on a site called myconversionlab.com. You can go and, number one, you can take a look and see the, the sorts of things that I put in my lab um, and begin to pick some of your own. Everything from reporting and graphics to uh, interesting analytics packages and add-ons for things like Excel and, um, and Chrome and such. So it's the tools that allow you to understand your visitors a little bit better and understand your industry a little bit better. That is your lab, your experimentation setup. And most of it exists in your browser. Yeah, that's great. And I think that one thing our listeners should know is that while obviously you can spend a lot of money on these tools, many of them are free either to test or even to 
use at a low level for a while. So if you don't have a lot of traffic or if you just want to do some very limited testing, quite a few of these tools are easy to implement and very, very inexpensive, even free. Yeah, free and cheap is the kind of the rule. And so there's no excuse for not experimenting with some of these interesting tools, except for a lack of curiosity. Right. And of course, probably the hope is that once you find that, gee, I'm really upping my conversions by using this tool that uh, you'll up to perhaps a higher level of usage where you have to pay them a little bit more money. But still, it's it's really great. I've been playing with a few free tools on the blog and it's uh, it's been illustrative. Yeah, yeah. So which ones do you like? Well, the one that I'm uh, was testing the Yoast uh, plugin that is hooked into convert.com, but uh, there are a couple others that I've played with too that are in the you know the split test uh, category or you know other tools of that ilk and it's it's really really great. Just adding the instrumentation to it, and of course Google Analytics has a ton of tools built in that between analytics and tag manager, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, all free tools up to really relatively high volumes uh, for web activity. Uh, you can really learn a lot just from those things. Yeah. And I think as a, either as a business manager or even as a marketer in a, in a larger company, you've got to know these tools and be comfortable with, with how to use them and how to properly read the data. Cause they're, they're very powerful and, and you can, draw some wrong conclusions from them. So uh, you're going to have to understand these tools and how to use them in very short order here. It's not going to be enough to be good at crafting messages. You have to know what the results of those messages are on the bottom line. Mm-hmm. In your book, Brian, you talk about there being five different kinds of websites. Do you find that sometimes uh, businesses that you deal with uh, don't really know which kind they have or they're not sure which kind they have? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting that over the over the years that I've been working on uh, both, you know, from publishing the book and prior to that, I, I presented on the, the kind of um, website you might have that there hasn't been any additions made to it. I expected to get, you know, a lot of feedback from people that, oh, my business doesn't fit into to one of the five, but they've held up pretty well. And just in very quickly, you've got the brochure site, you've got the site that's a consultative sell, which is typically a business to business sort of thing with a long sales cycle. You've got the online store, you've got the online service, and what I call a publication site, which is a site that is primarily content, and it's either a subscription model or an advertising model. And uh, in terms of, uh, that was one of the main reasons I wanted to bring these these categories forward was because, you know, when I first started in this business, everybody was putting up what you would call a brochure site. It is a site that talks all about you and it needs to be well designed and pretty. And there is a place for the brochure site in the pantheon of websites, but most businesses do not need a brochure site. They need one of the other types. So, and each type has a kind of a core set of strategies that you want to drop in. So, uh, you know, the consultative site is often people who need a consultative site usually put a brochure site up and it just isn't going to meet the needs of the visitors who are trying to understand how to choose a typically expensive, complex solution to a complex problem in their business. It can be everything from logistics of getting product from point A to B to human resources software. A brochure site that talks all about you isn't going to do that. So that's, I think that's the, the primary example of using the wrong type of site. 
there are opportunities to work to beat your competitors by deciding you're going to be a different site. So a, a site that, that might be a consultative site could say, you know what, we're going to put some tools and things online model ourselves more like a site as a service, an online service, and um, can fundamentally change the way they go to market on the web. So in playing with these kinds of modes of, of site, you really can find some interesting seams and some interesting insights about your your business. Mm-hmm. I think probably one danger of the brochure sites is one our mutual friend, uh, Brian Eisenberg, talks about with his wee-wee syndrome, which is too much emphasis on we throughout because, I mean, that's sort of what a brochure does. You know, it talks about you and your capabilities and so on and rarely focuses on solutions or uh, what your visitor, your customer is really interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the brochure, the paper brochure was limited because you never knew who was going to get it. It was given to the sales guys. It was left in the lobby. It was left behind on sales calls. It was distributed in in periodicals. So you had to write it kind of generic and general. But we don't have to do that on the web. Our lab really can tell us who's coming and, and how we need to speak to them. And so we don't need to be safe. And we certainly don't need to be inwardly focused. We need to focus on our visitors' concerns and, and desires. Mm-hmm. You know, now when we talk about conversion, we usually think about very measurable things like a completed lead form that's submitted and received or an e-commerce order that goes all the way through the pipeline and so on. Mm -hmm. But you talk about things like conversion to awareness and things like that. What are are some of the other types of conversion and is it possible to measure those things? Well, in general, what we find is it's more difficult to measure conversion from, you know, it really follows the funnel when you've got a bunch of people out there that don't know your product and maybe don't don't know your company and maybe don't even know that there's this sort of a solution to their problem, you've really got to convert them from unawareness to awareness. So you've got suspects being converted to prospects, prospects being converted to qualified prospects, and at each each stage there's a different way of measuring that. So, uh, you know, at awareness the number of people coming to your website is a, a good measure of how you're doing about converting people from not knowing anything to becoming aware of the product and, and your company. And the problem is that those are the conversions that we spend too much time on when really it's in converting them when they're con- to being aware of the product to actually considering it as a solution to their problems when we get into the consideration phase and then, of course, into the action where we want them to take some action those are the places that we don't spend enough time. We spend a great deal of time letting people know about what we offer and very little time about helping them make the decision. And uh, those are where the real opportunities are in the marketplace. So in the, in the middle, you're talking about conversions that are you know, typically lead-oriented conversions where you're offering a piece of content or a webinar that helps them understand the problem, helps them make a decision. And you can actually measure those with contact information that they provide, number of people who attend, you know, really kind of meaty metrics that you know are moving the business forward. And those require a higher level of commitment on the part of the visitor. And so they require a higher level of persuasion, more testing, more understanding of what the visitor wants, and more refinement of your message, all of which conversion optimization is designed to deliver. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I guess... Looking at content, I mean, when we think about conversion, we think about landing pages that are have one very clear objective in mind, getting the 
person to buy or to uh, give up their info or whatever. But on content pages, an objective might be to have the visitor get to the, to scroll down a few times to get to the end of the content. Mm -hmm. And that would be indicative that somehow the content engaged them. And that was probably some kind of a micro conversion there. It may not mean that they're, they've made a decision to, to buy or to inquire, but at least you've increased probably your awareness or your authority or something of that nature. Yeah. The thing is that the, the rules of marketing and advertising haven't changed. You still need some number of exposures before you feel that you are comfortable with a company or a brand or a product. The number that has always been bandied about, in my experience, has been seven to nine touches of some sort. And that can be a banner showing up on a page that, you know, if you're on CNN, a banner showing up for a particular brand, then getting an email, then seeing an invitation for a meetup in your town from somebody who works for that company, uh, and then three or four tweets and maybe something on Facebook, maybe an ad or something on Facebook. And individually, none of these things is going to generate a click, but when you start to add them up, a suspect who suddenly realizes they have this problem is going to not only bring that company to mind, but is going to have an artificially inflated level of trust just because it looks like that company's everywhere. So we need to play that, continue to play that game online uh, the same way that we, we do it in broadcast television, broadcast radio, print, the more traditional places we've done it because trust is trust one of the most important ingredients when somebody comes to make a decision around solving a problem, giving you some information, or better yet, pulling out their credit card and, and buying something from you. Mm -hmm. Right. Probably a lab coat's a good thing, too, for that trust part. You know, the, the lab coat is a very effective hook. Wish I could say that I... Well, that's, uh, yeah, the uh, old uh, doctor, doctor ads or doctor-looking people on uh, TV that assure you that Smoking cigarettes was fine, or particularly this brand would make you cough less than the, than the next brand. But uh, I mean, that's that was all about the playing to authority and trust. And there's the old so, study of uh, the guys in lab coats convincing someone to give test subjects higher and higher levels of shock. Oh, yeah, shocks. the Milgram experiment. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, uh, right. Yeah, it's scary what people are willing to do <laughs> if they're being told to do something by somebody who looks official. Uh -huh. uh, and that uh, showed that uh, they would deliver what sounded like a near lethal shock to subjects that they couldn't see. Fortunately, the people were not actually being tortured to death in the other room, but the people who were administering the shocks didn't know that. I know, I know. Fortunately, I've not, uh, I've not driven anybody to, uh, to harm anybody else uh, using the, the power of the lab coat. Mostly it's just, it's just a hook on which people can hang value. So if I was, if I was a total dope, if I was not that smart, or if I was telling people lies. Those are the things they would be associating with that lab coat, right. and they would, you know, it would have it would carry as a negative charge just as well as a positive charge. Right. Well, that's that's true because one thing, if if what you're doing is increasing memorability, then uh, if you're doing things that are memorable but bad, then obviously it's going to work against you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, hey, Brian, a while back, we kind of semi-collaborated on some eye-tracking tests. And uh, what I worked on was confirming that the old baby looking at the headline trick actually worked with images of adults, too, where if a person pictured on a web page was looking at or pointing at a headline, the headline got more visual attention. And that doesn't mean that it'll convert better. And actually, there's some indication that conversion isn't necessarily related to reading that headline or the call to action. But, but nevertheless, it was kind of interesting. But while I was doing that, you were working on 
testing the effects of uh, videos, and in particular, these sort of animated sketching videos. I'm curious, can you describe that a little bit and what, what you found? Yeah, so we had done an experiment with a company called Zumba in which we had invested in a day-long shoot, 120 different videos, 24 products, and the goal was to add video to a, an e-commerce site, essentially, e-commerce apparel site, and see if that would increase conversion rates. Zumba had a unique audience in which we thought the motion and the music would be uh, well received. Well, it turned out it wasn't. <laughs> so it did all <laughs> that work and we actually saw a lower conversion rate for product pages that had video on them. Uh, and, and this is why it's important to test, right, Brian? Yes, it is. As good as your gut is, it isn't always right. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you can probably gauge the skill of a conversion expert by their emphasis on saying, okay, we've got to test this, so even though I think it's a great idea. The more, the more they're sure it's going to work, probably the less they know. Uh, exactly, exactly. Anyways, about the, a little after that, a company called Mirametrics came and said, hey, we want to loan you some eye tracking software, eye tracking equipment. And I thought, perfect. We can find out exactly what's going on here. And so we tested three kinds of business video, which I've never been able to find eye tracking tests on. One is just talking head video in which I'm explaining a concept. One is webinar style video in which just static images are, are shown as I voice over. And then the uh, whiteboard video in which I actually draw on the screen to illustrate the points that I'm making. And I was dying to find out how people watch this whiteboard video. So we, we had uh, 22 people go through the, the process and watching one of the three videos. And then we also did a split test to see which would generate the most clicks on a short form. So what we found out was that people watch whiteboard video, they watch the pen. I mean, they watch it very closely. And it's kind of like as you watch the video with the eye tracking uh, bubbles on it, they're the, the red, blue, and green bubbles, much like you would see on a, a weather map, but they move in real time. It's almost like someone's riding with a, a bit of fire on the screen. It's fascinating to watch. I'll give you the URL. You can publish the URL to actually go and, and see some some of the examples of that. That also tested well, we'll the best. We'll post that in the show notes. That tested the best in our split test, our landing page split test, in which we drove a bunch of traffic to one of the three pages that were identical, except the the kind of video that they saw was different. We found that faces in video are extremely attractive, much like you would see on a web page or in a print ad, like what you were testing. Even if you have um, like a prop, like at one point I held up my book, attention would go on that for just a minute, but very quickly go back to the face. And that, that was kind of an interesting insight. And then watching when people look away from the video in a uh, noisy environment, like if your video is on YouTube, we got to see how people who were in a clinical situation told that they were being recorded still would be drawn to look away at the sidebar and the other things that are on a, on a YouTube page noisy, distracting environments like YouTube and Facebook are dangerous if you're trying to persuade somebody with video. Hmm. Well, that's, that's really interesting stuff. And I would guess the reason the whiteboard videos work so well or hold the attention so well is just the constant motion. I mean, compared to, say, a slideshow that's periodically advancing the content, but otherwise it's static, that's just not really engaging our brains, which are more or less trained to tune out stuff that's stationary because chances are it's not a threat or something to eat if it's just sitting there. Mm -hmm. 
And on the, on the other hand, where you've got this, this constant motion of the sketching going on, it's hard not to watch that and focus on it. You know, I think you're right. This was a, a long video. It was eight minutes. Each of these videos was eight minutes long. And uh, so we kind of stretched the attention. Yeah, no, I think I saw it about 200 times. <laughs> yeah, we stretched the attention of the audience. But even the, um, the engagement time graphs that you saw on YouTube were the whiteboard video just – held attention for so much longer, even even to the six and seven minute marks. So it's very interesting. Yes, there's something going on there. I, I think it's so effective that I think it has to be more than just the motion, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. We well, that's, it's interesting. I know that I've seen some of the uh, internet marketing folks who use these very simple videos that just have sort of words on the screen that are almost like subtitles, but that's all there is on the screen going with the narration. Uh, supposedly those things convert fairly well, although they don't seem all that engaging. They don't seem all that engaging, but the word is, and and the thing is, the infopreneurs who test these, who use these things, are avid testers. And so I actually keep my pulse on, they're kind of like the tabloids that the men in black use to see when aliens are coming to Earth or when aliens are misbehaving. (laughs) I kind of uh, keep my tabs on these infopreneurs who are, you know, less worried about brand and more worried about raw persuasion as harbingers of what techniques we might bring over and adapt to a more brand sensitive industry like the clients that we work with. Right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense because they are very good at testing and optimizing. And even if you don't use the exact same techniques, you can certainly see if if you see something that's used consistently uh, multiple times or across multiple sites, chances are that really works. Mm -hmm. Well, and, uh, you know, it's just a hypothesis that we're taking from them. Obviously, we're testing those in these other industries to see if they work. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about lead generation. It's kind of a special case for conversion. You aren't really trying to sell anything, so you uh, often merely need to get somebody to give up uh, their email address and a little bit of contact information. I'm curious about a couple of things. Uh, How good of an idea is it, do you think, to include a bunch of form fields that help qualify the lead and versus not where you'd have a very simple form that then the qualification has to take place a bit later. So you're, you know, it's, it's sort of a conversion versus qualification uh, trade-off. Uh, and then also I'm curious about uh, phone leads, yeah. whether you've worked with that at all. Well, so, you know, it is for every business, it is a trade-off between how many qualifying fields you're going to put on the form. Uh, in almost every case, the more fields you add to a form, the lower your conversion rate is going to be. In other words, the fewer leads you're going to generate, but the higher the quality is going to be. Um, somebody who is more determined to learn about your your solution or be contacted by a salesperson, they're going to find their, a way to get through the, the fields that you've got. And the caveat is don't add any fields that your sales force isn't really using. I mean, if they're going to if they've got a script in which they're going to ask these qualifying questions up front and every lead's going to get answered, then it's probably not appropriate to put it on the form itself. There are situations in which, for instance, you're applying for a loan in which having too few fields will work against you because if you say, apply for a loan now and all it asks is your name and your email address, there's something going on here. I'm being squeezed. So it's very different for everyone. Now... If you want to generate phone calls, one of the things we found is the best way to generate a phone call, and for our clients, phone calls are worth five to ten times 
what a form fill is because after someone fills out a form, you've got to get through to them by email. You've got to get them to come to action. It's a whole other conversion process. Whereas if they pick up the phone, they're talking to a knowledgeable person on the other end, they're more likely to close. One of the best ways to get people to call is to put a big, ugly form on the page, make the phone number very evident. In other words, put the phone number in the headline, add a big, ugly form, and you're going to see your phone calls skyrocket. So much so that we actually did a test in which we didn't even put a form on the page. All you could do was call. Phone number was very prominent. It was in the headline. It was repeated 75% down the page. We find those to be the ideal places for phone numbers. Phone calls dropped 56% when we took the form off. So adding hmm. the form back in and then adding some text at the top of the form that said, you know, if you really want to take real action now, you'll call us. But if you want to fill out this form, and it was a long, ugly form, <laughs> that just, in, in this particular industry, that generated the most phone calls for us. So it's another one of those strange rules of thumb you get. But whenever we take a new client, they want to generate phone calls, we say, well, first thing we need to do is put a big, ugly form on the page. And they look at us like we have three heads. But <laughs> it has worked in a number of places. So... Yeah, it's, it's sort of a fluency trade-off there, I think, where one thing looks really difficult and the other, by comparison, looks a lot easier. And I think it's probably true for mobile, too, wouldn't you say, Brian, that when people are in a mobile environment, even a short form can be a real blocker almost to conversion, whether it's an e-commerce site or a lead gen site. And I think they've seen some data that shows that mobile folks will get to the point of placing the order. And if there's a an easy phone number where they can just tap it in their phone and complete the order that way, often they'll do that rather than go through the process of trying to enter their credit card information uh, you know, by tapping it in on their phone. Yeah, yeah. The click-to-call and the social network connects the open authorizations that you get from Google and Facebook and, and the, those guys where you can just click a button, they'll grab all of your contact information from their database and, and send that on. Really are winning right now on the, uh, on the mobile phone. So... You're absolutely right. It is a pain in the butt to fill out a form on a mobile phone. Yeah. I'm sure that'll be addressed over time with uh, stored information and uh, some really nice mechanisms. But uh, at the moment, the phone is far from dead, despite what people might think. <laughs> so, yeah, just uh, about out of time, Brian, but just to wrap up, uh, we're both in Austin, Texas, and you're actually a rather long-term resident here. I'm a bit newer, about uh, four or five years now. And there's an amazing concentration of conversion and web marketing experts here. And we've talked about that, remarked on it for years, but you actually did something about it and published a blog post that we'll, we'll link to in the show notes about all of the conversion experts and web marketing experts that are here in town. What, what is it about Austin, do you think, that it's been a magnet for all this talent? You know, I don't know if it's coincidence. So I think it is, Austin is a creative class of town. And it's a good mix of technology and classical creative. It's a huge music scene here, a very hippie-driven art scene. Uh, and then the University of Texas drives these um, high-technology, smart guys. Even even a number of the, the smaller colleges here in town are just training these, these bright, technology-oriented folks. So I think that forms a, a nice soil and then there are just some anchors. So Brian and Jeffrey Eisenberg live here. They're the grand poobahs, the founding sons of conversion optimization space. And, and they 
developed their knowledge around the Wizard Academy, which is an unusual school out in the hill country here, a business school that takes a very different approach to what makes things work. And I, so I think they form kind of a core and just the fact that you can have this cross of creative plus technology, which is conversion science, as we say, it takes a rigorous creativity to do conversion optimization. You've got to have the discipline to do the science. But at the end of the day, you've got to really get outside the box because audiences are so surprising. And Austin just is that. So it may also just be the fact that we're the first ones to claim to be the conversion capital of the world. And that's all it takes. (laughs) We we, we owe it all to you, Brian. So let me remind our audience that we've been talking to Brian Massey. His book is Your Customer Creation Equation, Unexpected Formulas of the Conversion Scientist. And Brian, how can folks find your stuff online and connect with you? Well, everything we are learning, we're we're teaching and giving away at um, our blog, conversionscientist.com. And if you are interested in the book and would like to become a friend of the author, me, I'd be happy to give you a free chapter that you can try out. And you'll find that blog, the book blog, at customercreationequation.com. Super. Well, Brian, it's been a real pleasure talking to you and look forward maybe to talking to some of the other Austin experts in the future, but you are the first Austin expert. So congratulations and congratulations on bringing that to the fore as well. So uh, anyway, uh, it's been great, Brian. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure always, Roger. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the BrainFluence podcast. To continue the discussion and to find your own path to brainy success, please visit us at rogerdooley.com.